0: All right, good evening, Creekers. How are you doing? A few of you are really good. The rest of you might need some time. That's okay. We are in Romans 8 tonight, and I couldn't be more excited for this. I really couldn't be more excited for just being in the book of Romans. When I first got saved, I remember that the pastor who led me to Christ uh, said to me to spend my first two months as a new believer, just reading through the book of Romans and better understanding all the promises that we have for us as believers in Christ Jesus. And so I'm, I'm really excited to be in Romans. I'm really excited to be in Romans 8 as a part of that too. And it's an honor to just to be here tonight. Um, my hope and prayer as we're looking at this particular section of scripture is that this is an unbelievable encouragement to you not because of who is speaking or even what I say as much as that the Spirit communicates to you God's love and affection for you. And so I'm excited to look at this. You know, we've been looking through, uh, we started last week in Romans 1 through 11, 8, 1 through 11. And if you remember, as Pastor Mark was walking us through this time, he talked a lot about the freedom that we have that comes from being a believer, a follower of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. The freedom that comes from our being saved. There's a, a freedom from the sense of condemnation that comes from um, from the law. We're not free from that law. Um, we're free from the condemnation even of our own sin because Christ took all those things on the cross for us. The punishment that was to be ours was on him. And so we have this new sense of relationship with the Father and We have a standing before him that's different than what it was before because of what Christ has done for us. Um, He he gives life, this first section of Romans 8. He gives life to our bodies. And remember, as we're thinking about the gospel, before we even get into our section tonight, remember where you were before you were saved. Ephesians 2 gives us an accurate picture of what that looked like. Paul says to the church at Ephesus, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. And so again, we think about the sweetness of Romans 8. We think about promises that come to us, freedom and life in the Spirit. Tonight, we're going to look at a new promise for us, Um, a sweet promise for us, and you'll see why in a second. But that's God's promises for us in Christ in the spirit of adoption. So hope your Bibles are open. Romans 8, we're gonna start in verse 12. Uh, Main point for tonight, our main point, our adoption in Christ empowers us to live holy lives by his spirit. I'll say it one more time. Our adoption in Christ empowers us to live holy lives by his Spirit. All right, Romans 8, we're going to jump right in, verse 12. We're going to go all the way through to verse 17. So then, brothers and sisters, believers, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you receive the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him also. Let me pray for our, our time again, if we can. Father, your word reveals to us so many wonderful truths and promises for our lives. And the sweetness that we reflect on tonight in our adoption, our right standing in front of you as righteous, declared righteous because of Christ, but also as your sons and daughters, I just I pray that the reality of that would sink into our hearts and we would recognize that we have all we need in you as we seek to live holy lives for your name's sake. May this word come alive to us tonight. Speak through me, Father, that we might all learn and grow to look more and more like Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. this section, uh, especially in particular the idea of putting to death the deeds of the body is not unique just to the just to Romans, this letter that Paul is writing to the church that's in Rome. Colossians 3, 5. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality and impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Titus 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Galatians 3 24. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, and so on. As we think about this scripture here, we we cannot miss the very beginning of verse 12. What we see there are the words, so then, or you might have in your translation, therefore, meaning Paul is continuing on with the section that we just read. And in fact, The sweet thing about Romans is every new chapter is a building of an argument that helps us to understand all that God has done in and for us in Christ Jesus. And so um, just as you think about this, what we're thinking of in that so then is the answer to the question, what has God changed in us that helps us to live in freedom, yet also in a way that's pleasing to him. So three things for us tonight as we look at this section of scripture. The reality, the resource, and the reward. The reality, the resource, and the reward. All right, so so Paul first opens up with the reality. Um, he has to help us to understand what is our nature now as believers in him, and yet the environment that still remains around us. And so he gives us this, this truth. Living in the flesh leads To death, you see in verse 12 there, we're not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to, what does that say? You are going to, what's the word? Die. You are going to die. Your translation might actually have something like, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh. Anybody have that? We have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh. So Paul's helping us to understand a new way to think about our flesh. Now, Pastor Mark did a great job explaining for us last week what that means. Here we're going to look at the truth that our flesh has been corrupted by sin. So something for us to think about. We are saved. We are positionally before God saved. We are positionally saved. We are made righteous because of Christ. When we stand before the Father and we have faith in Him and His finished work on the cross, we are saved. We're saved. We're positionally saved, but we're also positionally sent to be a light into the darkness, meaning that your life is still going to be around a whole lot of lost people in a very broken world that's still waiting for redemption, right? It's kind of this already not yet principle that we see over and over again in scriptures. You are saved And yet there's a time in your life now where we're waiting for God's glory to be fully revealed, finally revealed as all of His sons and daughters come to faith in him. So we're surrounded still by sin and brokenness. And your flesh, Paul's reminding us, is susceptible still to temptation as we give into that temptation and to sin. And that's our hearts and our minds that struggle with the brokenness that's around us and wrestling with that but then also the very real attacks of our enemy. And I just before we move on from this, why would God leave us here then? Like we just need to think about this question. If God did all this to save us, then why would he just leave us here? Why would he not just save us and at the moment that we are saved, at 10 or at 16 or at 36, then all of a sudden you're just taken up into heaven and all of eternity now is with him. Like why would he leave us here? Well, it's, it's a reminder that the work is still not accomplished. And seeing the fullness of those who will come to be believers come to pass. We are still here to be a witness for his gospel. And that means living life and wrestling against the flesh in a world that's trying all that it can to draw us away from the Lord. And so we have to think about, again, our flesh is corrupted by sin. We are positionally saved, but also we're positionally sent. You still have a job to do. And that's to be a light in the darkness, a witness for Christ, a minister of reconciliation, he tells us in his word, to help people to understand God's saving work in Jesus. Another question. What relationship then do we have with our flesh? What does this mean? What's our relationship look like? Well, Paul answers that pretty clearly too. If we're going to have these temptations that come our way, how are we supposed to respond to them? Paul's very clear you have no obligation to them. You have no obligation to them. And this is really interesting because, especially in this time, this is a church that's centered in Rome where you see, uh, especially in Greek culture before that too, a, a flurry of people that would race into their earthly passions. They would chase after whatever their hearts desired. Some things that we would now call completely and totally sinful according to God's word. So what he's saying is, you, as you face temptations, are not to give in to those things. Your walk as a believer is to look different than what it did before and radically different from the culture that you're being sent into to be a witness for his namesake. We also have to realize this too. Because we have no obligation to the flesh, we have to become now hypercritical to the desires that do come up from within our own heart. Okay, So let's be honest here. We don't have a follow your heart type of faith. We don't. We have a type of faith that tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things, right? That's what God's word says. We have to begin to look internally and to criticize elements of our passions and heart's desires and thoughts and motivations. And we look at those things in the framework of what does God say is holy? What does God say is right for my life? And so we need this reminder. Because let's think about it honestly, y'all. Doesn't our flesh sometimes give us a really good argument that we should just give in? Then we'd sometimes think, you know, that really looks like it'd be fun to do. I really want those people to like me, so I should I should talk and act just like them. Like, we all have those feelings. It would just be easier if I then insert the blank. That's not how this works. We have to remember that the heart can be deceiving. The flesh offers not life, but death. All right, so final question as we think about this one section. What does death then look like? If he says, if he says to us that if we um, live according to the flesh, we're going to die. Well, I think that very plainly, it's important for us to realize that there is this Thing called spiritual death, spiritual death. And so this letter is written to a church where we have believers that are in the audience here um, that are reading this letter, but I would say that what Paul's saying to us is, hey, you're a follower in Jesus now, your life is going to look a lot different, the contrast to that life that looks different is following in all the things that your body wants to do, your heart and mind want to do, that are against God, and that's going to lead to death. So he's not saying that, let's be really clear, you can lose your salvation, He's not. He's making a contrast for those that are reading this to realize that you're supposed to be different. So for the believers, make no mistake, you can't lose your salvation. That's not what he's saying. But I will say this. I know that there's folks in this room that have not put their hope and trust and faith in Christ. And so as we read through this and we think about the path that's before everyone on the planet, to choose Jesus or to rebel against him. For those that are not in him, heed this warning. Your life could seem great. And the pleasures that you chase after could be amazing. They end ultimately in death. Separation. There's no middle ground here. You can't have it both ways. So heed the warning. If you're just playing church, stop it. Turn yourself over to Jesus. Trust in his glorious gospel. If you are a believer, then I would also just encourage you to heed the warning that your life is supposed to not look like everyone else. So when I think about being a believer and reading this, I also think about the fact that though I know that my salvation is secure, we can still taste a sense of death in our daily lives also. It may not look like spiritual death, it may not look like literal death, but there's what I would call a stench of death. This this sense of something that looks like it's about to die, that it has this air about it that almost seems like it's dead. Where there's elements of our life that are so rotten that it might as well be dead, even as a believer. What does that look like? I mean, could that look like guilt? A sense of ache for repentance and forgiveness? As you think about sins and giving in to temptations, does it look like embarrassment? Embarrassed to your friends, embarrassed to your parents, embarrassed to your coworkers, embarrassed to your schoolmates? That form of death can come in the sense of your reputation? That giving in to sin can lead to people speaking about you in a way that's not how you want them to speak about you, not one that honors and glorifies God, surely not even glorifies, like, just your own sense of decent character. Giving in the sin, a sense of death could look like uh, having an identity of just being a failure. Maybe even beginning to truly think that God just doesn't love you anymore. Like, those thoughts will begin to creep in. Could it look like loss? Could giving in to sin and allowing that to creep into our lives, could it look like loss of friends, loss of a girlfriend, loss of a boyfriend, loss of privileges, loss of trust? A sense of death creeps into our lives when that happens. Could it look like a delay? A delay in driving, a delay in dating, a delay in whatever it would be that you feel like is next in the stage of your life? You know, what's really interesting about this, One of the number one things that we see as we evaluate folks to go out to become missionaries at your IMB, one of the number one things that causes a delay in the process, and I mean even to go out for a month or two in the summer, and that's pornography addiction. Not walking in purity. One of the number one reasons that can cause a delay in you having to be obedient to God's calling on your lives. More importantly, can death look like your witness for Christ suffers? In other words, you can't use nasty words all the time and then turn right around and then talk about the glorious gospel of Jesus to those same friends. You can't gossip out of one side of your mouth and then praise God in the other. Your witness is going to be terrible. It looks like death. It's going to be ineffective. And so, as we think about those things, even as believers, let's remember um, that we have been given help for this cause. So the question that I then want to wrap into this next section is, how do we walk worthy as a light in the darkness when we're no longer our past selves, but we're still in the same world? Well, kind of a quick story. So, um, I remember I was eight uh, when the first Nintendo came out. The first Nintendo came out. And one of the best games that came out on the original, right, the OG Nintendo system, was the gold-framed Legend of Zelda. Who remembers the old gold Legend of Zelda? you probably only seen it in pictures now. Yeah, okay, I got one. <laughs> old school. So the way that Zelda started out back in the day was your character with Zelda, Link, would begin in the middle of the frame. And all of a sudden... He would just appear at the start of the game, and there would be a little cave above him. Now, if he were to go anywhere else in the map at that point, he's going to encounter all kinds of dangers. There would be enemies trying to kill him, whatever it would be, right? But there's a cave at the very beginning where if you go up into that cave, you see something that looks just like this. The old man. And his words to Link are, it's dangerous to go alone. Take this. What's he giving him? a sword, right? You cannot go through the rest of the game. You can't even go to the next map without that sword. Why? Because what's going to happen? You're going to what? You're going to die. <laughs> you can't go anywhere without that sword. There's a, there's a parallel I want to draw here for us as we think about our lives. Like God has placed us in a in an environment, in a world of brokenness and darkness, right, to be a light for his namesake. But he has equipped us for this work. And so we've looked at the reality. Let's now look at the resource that he gives us, and that's God's Spirit. So verse 13, the resource, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will, what did your Bible say? You will what? Live. You will live. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so, as we think about this problem, how do we think about our freedom in Christ, but then also walking in holy lives for his namesake? How do we do that well? Well, we submit everything in our lives to the Spirit. Let me give this example. If you were here last week, you would have heard Mark give the example of, your salvation looks a lot like you in the ocean way far out from shore not just drowning but having been drowned you're dead at the bottom at the bottom of the ocean floor and jesus comes down jumps into the water swims down to the bottom brings you back up to the shore gives you air gives you bre- breath gives you life again resuscitates your body right that's the nature of salvation I would add one part to that, though. It's wrong for us to then look at Jesus and go, hey, thank you, Jesus, I got it from here, and just to turn and walk the other direction. No, absolutely not. Guys, Jesus did not come into the world, live a perfect life for God that you were supposed to live, die on the cross, take the wrath of God as punishment for your sins, and rise from the grave just to put a Christian stamp On how you want to live. Jesus didn't come into the world, live a perfect life for God that you were supposed to live, die on the cross, and take the wrath of God as punishment for your sins, and then rise from the grave just to then leave you on your own, to figure out on your own how to, as he asks us, be holy because I am holy. Jesus gives us himself, he gives us his spirit. By the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. Remember, there is nothing that you contributed to your salvation except for a response of belief in Him. And even that, it's only by His calling, where God looked to your life long before you were born and He said, This one is mine. All your accomplishments and failures, every good and bad day, your great deeds done in His name, and your disobedience. All of that in full view of the Father, and he looks at you long before you're born, and he calls you his own. So no, he doesn't leave us now. In fact, we'll look at this in a couple weeks. Romans 8.30 tells us, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. He's there every step in the process. There's no part of your salvation where he just steps away. There's no battle today that hasn't already been won. There's no reality when you find yourself on your own. On the worst day you've had, he's there. In the midst of the hardest loss, he's there. During your toughest temptation, he's there. In the most confusing and frustrating stage of your life, he's there. And when you're most lonely and afraid, he's there. And he's working all those things for our good. The Spirit of God is the fulfillment of Christ when He promised to us in Matthew 28 I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's the Helper, the Anointing, the Eternal Spirit, the Gift of God, the Oil of Gladness, One Spirit, the Spirit of Adoption, the Spirit of the Fear of the Lord, the Spirit of Holiness, the Spirit of Grace, the Spirit of Life in My Witness, the Spirit of Glory. The spirit of revelation, the spirit of a sound mind, the spirit of truth, promise of the Father, gift of God, the spirit of Christ, spirit of wisdom, the spirit of access, the spirit of indwelling, the spirit of revelation, the spirit of power, the spirit of unity, the spirit of sealing, the spirit of fruitfulness, the spirit of fullness, and the spirit of victory. He gives us all that we need in the spirit of God And so what do we do? How do we, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body? I think two, two verses to look at. First, be led by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit to know the path to take. Galatians 5, 16 through 18 would say, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. I think he leads us as well, we would say, by his word and also in prayer. In his word, Colossians 3, in prayer, Ephesians 6. We let God lead, which means you have to get out of the way. He has to be front and center. Second thing, spirit needs to transform your mind. How do you, by the spirit, put to death the deeds of the body? Your mind has to be transformed. Romans 12, 2, do not conform the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you have to, in this case, the Spirit will help you to think different, so you can look different, begin to love the things that God loves, and hate the things that God hates. So this does require our work. I want to say this, more on that in a second, but it does begin and end with the Spirit. Our response is to turn it over to Him. It's the spirit that made your dead heart alive. It's the spirit of God. His literal presence in our lives, 1 Corinthians 3. It's a spirit that will help us to be fruitful for God, Galatians 5. It's a spirit that teaches us and reminds us all that Christ commanded us, John 14. It's a spirit that gives a way out from temptation, 1 Corinthians 10. It's a spirit that guides us to know God's will for our lives. It's the spirit that reminds us that we are his children. More on that in a second. Leon Morris, an Anglican theologian, once said, the Spirit of God is the distinguishing mark of the Christian, and this presence means the defeat of the power of sin, and He leads the liberated person into ways of goodness and love. So we can't just focus on behavior change. When it comes to putting to death the deeds of the flesh, this isn't just about modifying your life and your actions on your own will and, and in your own knowledge. It's not just behavior change. It's about changing the causes of that behavior. And the behavior will take care of itself. The Spirit is who guides us. So, it does begin and end with the Spirit, but it's not just all on Him. We have work to do. It still requires our action, or better, I could say, our response to Him and obedience to His leading, Uh, Two quotes, John Stott once said, holiness is not a condition into which we drift. You think about the act of drifting into something. It's kind of like a casual sliding into it, maybe a little bit uncontrolled, right? If your car drifts, you're kind of out of control for a little bit, you're sliding into something. Like What he's saying here is no one drifts into holiness. You don't just passively all of a sudden become looking like Christ, become perfectly holy and righteous, Right? John Owen would also remark that you have to be killing sin, or it will be killing you. So there's an action on our part that we must take, with a transformed mind and a transformed heart, that we submit all things to God, and we say, God, how ought I to respond? How ought I to think about this thing? Um, would you think about this for a second? Uh, who has pets? In their house. All right. Who has pets in their house? I'll say in the house. All right. We have lots of pets in our house. We've got a really evil cat who's probably like 25 years old at this point. She's super old. We have three bunnies. And sometimes my three kids act like pets too. That's a different story altogether. All right. So uh, your pets, you got a dog, a hamster, a rabbit, something, right? Um, I doubt that any of you actually have like a tiger cub as a pet. Uh, That'd be really cool first. What's the challenge with you having a tiger cub as a pet? That tiger cub's going to grow up to be a what? A tiger. What do tigers like to eat? Humans. Meat. You. Us. Me. Right? You could think to yourself that you could keep a, a tiger as a pet for a little while especially when they're little. But eventually, that thing will grow up to look at you as nothing more than a small snack on his way to a dinner. Eventually, that thing will kill you. It's in that same mindset that we should be thinking about sin and temptation in our lives. Do we just keep certain sins around? Yeah, I sometimes say a cuss word here and there. It's, you know, I'm, I'm working on it. Yeah, I'm dating this girl, and you know sometimes we might take it too far in how we talk to one another. But like it's it's okay. We're, we're doing we're working through that. Yeah, I sometimes look over at the person next to me's test when they're taking a test. Just I you know it's, I don't do it all the time. It's just sometimes like you are feeding a tiger cub that will one day devour you. When Cain kills Abel, right before. In Genesis, God gives Cain a warning. He says, sin is crouching at your door. It wants to have you. You must master it. It wants to, listen to the words, it wants to have you. It wants to have every part of you. It wants to take down all good things, all joyful things, all godly things that are in your life. It wants to ruin you. It wants to make you think that God doesn't love you, will never forgive you. Sin wants to have you. It wants to destroy your relationships. We have an active role to play in this process. God gives us his spirit. We have to respond. So that struggle you have with gossip or immature words you use in your texts, have you sought the Lord in prayer? Asking for help and controlling your tongue. Better yet, do you need some space from friends who bring that out of you for a season? Those teachers who are constantly on your case, or the coach never seems to be playing you as much as you want to be played in the game. Are you asking the Lord to bring to bring peace and love into your heart? More than that, do you genuinely need to think about all the things? that you can give gratitude to God for. Not only does the Spirit prompt our hearts toward holiness, but he also begins to help us to truly hate temptation and sin as God does. And this is where victory begins. You can't, under your own power, hate sin and temptation as much as God does. You need God transforming your mind. You need God renewing your heart. You need God prompting you to look at things differently than you ever have before. I will say this, though, too. He doesn't just turn us into angry, self-depriving, miserable individuals, right? We don't just walk around all day just shunning temptation and being angry at the brokenness that's all around us he also begins to fill us with a deep affection for things the Lord loves. There's a big role for the Spirit in that. In a sense, this is mortification. Mortification is what the Puritans used to call this, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Mortification, mort- as morse, if you took Spanish, morte, there's lots of variations to that. Mortification essentially means to put to death. Mortification does give way to adoration. We begin to replace the things that God hates in our lives as we put sins to death, as the pattern of our daily walk looks more and more and more righteous and less and less and less sinful. God's also replacing our, in our heart things that we could be deeply affectionate for that are his desires, lostness around us, loving our enemies, wanting to be a witness for his namesake, putting more of our yes on the table for the things that he would have us to do in our lives, mortification will give way to adoration. And when we realize, when we realize that it's a deception, it's a deception to us to think that just walking in holiness and keeping in stride with the spirit, it's just gonna rob us of tremendous joy in our lives, we're wrong. In fact, we're settling for so much less when it comes to sin and temptation. C.S. Lewis once authored uh, this really great passage, thinking about how we settle in our lives for things when we're offered so much more in God. He said, It would seem that our Lord would find our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is being meant by being offered a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The Spirit begins to replace in us a desire for the things that God would want in our lives. And so that's our resource. Now let's look at the reward. The reward here, this promise we have in Christ Spirit of Adoption. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. Verse 15 now. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the Spirit of Adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we're God's children. And if God's children, then heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him, so that we also might be glorified with him. As you look at this, you think about adoption in Christ. First, know this. Know who you are and whose you are. Who you are and whose you are. John 1, 11 through 13 says, Jesus came into his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, He gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Do you know your identity, follower? The Spirit does. You're a child of God, not by birth, not by merit, not deserving of your own good deeds, but as an act of his love. You've been adopted. In the, in the Roman world, as you think about adoption, they would know this really well, it was a literal termination of all old things, all old debts, all your previous standing, your status, all rights, everything was terminated so that in your new life, your new, your, um, your new place in the family, you were giving new standing, new privileges, and a new inheritance. You take the place of the son. That's what that means. Your adoption means you take the place of a son. You think about that when you think about being co heirs with Christ. You're a child of God. And so walking in freedom, empowered by the Spirit to put your sins to death, allows you to know your. New identity. The world does not define you. That's what your father does. Your friends don't define you. That's what your father does. Your family doesn't define you. That's what your father does. Your temptations don't define you. That's what your father does. Your struggles don't define you. That's what your father does. Your failures don't define you. That's what your father does. And your sin does not define you. That's what your Father does. He gives us such a sweet spirit that even in our moments where when we don't even know the words to pray, or when we feel like we can't cry out to God as Father, look here as he says that the Spirit empowers us to cry out, Abba. Spirit is all that we need. This relationship now that we enjoy with the Father is sweet. Not only do we have access to him, think about it, the creator of the universe will bend his ear to listen to your prayer. Not only that, he'll lean in strongly and embrace you in love, all the things that he's done for you in Christ and listen to your heart even as it's broken, complaining about hurt and pleading with him for new and different. He hears our prayers. And not only that, he responds. He responds to the prayers of his children. We have wonderful access to the Father by the Spirit because of Christ. And for that, we're thankful. And so know who you are and know whose you are. Know this too your calling and your adoption. Your sanctification are all unbreakably linked. I'll explain that in a second. I want you to read this from Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. We have to remember how we got here to where he's given us his spirit, that he looked before the world was formed and saw us and saw our lives and predestined us to become his sons and daughters. Again, not by birth, but by his calling. And not only has he done that, he predestined us that we would be holy and blameless. He's looking to our lives, seeing Christ as his perfect son And saying to us that he will commit to work in our lives, that we would work, that we would look more and more and more like him until the day that we die. It's inseparable. Our calling, our adoption, being made sons and daughters, and our being made new, being made more in the likeness of Christ, is unbreakably linked. Final thing know your inheritance. This is where we'll finish for tonight. Know your inheritance. And the guy said he calls us co-heirs with Christ. We have to keep our eyes looking forward. What is the pathway for us to put sins to death? Walking in the Spirit, listening to the voice of the Spirit, keeping our eyes heavenward. Colossians 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things of earth. You're a co-heir with Christ. With all the privileges and treasures that come from the Father to his Son, he gives those same things to us. Better yet, your reward is Christ. We think of all the joy that will come for us in heaven. We think about the new earth that we'll be on. Our ultimate reward is, it's not treasures, it's Jesus. He who came to die for us when we were enemies of his and that by our faith alone in him, our trust in his finished work on the cross, that in that alone, we might have new life and an eternity spent at his right hand with, as the Bible says, pleasures and joys forevermore. As we think about this tonight, let's just remember all the good that he has planned for us and our submission to that plan that our lives would look more like Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word and I thank you that even tonight by your spirit that we can study this and understand it as it applies to our lives, that we would know the things in our life that, are displeasing to you, and that by your power, Lord, we would work to put those things to death in a way that pleases you, in a way that doesn't allow those things to ruin our lives, to create death in our lives, to ruin our witness. God, help us to walk and strive with your spirit that we might produce much fruit for your kingdom and for your glory. In your name I pray, amen.